from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the live stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. And how many of you say that along with me? I'm actually kind of curious. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And don't think I didn't see many of you following me on Instagram and joining the Facebook uh, fan page, Serial Killing a Podcast fan page. I saw you. Thank you so much for joining. I can't wait to get some convos started. So this week's podcast was voted to be on Guy Georges, but I'm going to refer to him as Guy as that is how it's spelled. And I really don't want to embarrass myself with the pronunciation. I haven't studied French since high school. Um, moving on. So Guy, who was actually born Guy Rampillon, was born on October 15th, 1962 in Vitry-le-François, France. Hope I didn't butcher that. So let's get into some history for that time. The first American, John Glenn, went up into space and orbited the Earth. Also this year was the Cuban Missile Crisis. You see, the United States backed CIA-trained forces of Cuban exiles to overthrow the Cuban regime known as the Bay of Pigs. A U.S. embargo ordered by President Kennedy went into effect on all imports from Cuba, including tobacco, seafood, fruits, and vegetables. Cuban and Soviet governments secretly began to build nine missile bases in Cuba for launching medium-range and intermediate-range ballistic missiles, missiles capable of reaching 2,800 miles covering most of the United States, and, of course, the U.S. became suspicious of this. The Soviet Union, you know, denied the allegations coming from the U.S. A United States Air Force U-2 plane on a photo reconnaissance mission captured photographic proof of Soviet missile bases, in fact, under construction in Cuba. Needless to say, things got tense. And speaking of President Kennedy... 1962 is the year that Marilyn Monroe did her infamous singing of the birthday song to President Kennedy. This event became an iconic moment in pop culture when the actress sang an intimate, sultry, and memorable rendition of Happy Birthday to the world leader. Monroe wore an intricately designed, skin-tight beaded dress that was considered a little scandalous for the time, And, regretfully, Kim Kardashian wore this iconic dress, catch my eyes as they roll past. 
but the performance added to rumors that the two were having an affair, and only three months later, Marilyn died of a drug overdose, ruled a probable suicide under suspicious circumstances. And my personal opinion is that it is quite suspicious. Moving on. James Meredith became the first African-American student to enroll at the University of Mississippi in the fall of 1962. He was an Army veteran who had made several attempts to enroll at the university but was forced away by Mississippi's governor and denied entry. He was finally able to enter the school after being escorted by United States Marshals at the insistence of President Kennedy, and he graduated. Brazil beat Czechoslovakia 3-1 to to win the 1962 World Cup. The United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution condemning South Africa's racist apartheid policies and calls for all UN member states to cease military and economic relations with the nation. Burundi gained independence from Belgium. Algeria gained independence from France. Jamaica gained independence from Great Britain. Heavy storms caused flooding on Germany's North Sea coast, mainly around Hamburg. More than 300 people died and thousands lost their homes. Air France Boeing 707 crashed on takeoff at Orly Airport in Paris. The oral polio vaccine developed by Albert Sabin was then given to millions of children to combat polio, and thank God for that. So other notable people born this year were John Bon Jovi, Jodie Foster, Demi Moore, Tom Cruise, John Stewart, and Steve Carell. So this was the atmosphere that Guy was born into. His father was a black American man named George Cartwright, a soldier who worked as a cook on the NATO bases in France. His mother was Helene Marguerite Rampion. She was a single mother already to a little son, but was being raised by her parents. She was a 25-year-old barmaid when she met George. And according to sources, theirs was a whirlwind romance. It didn't take long before Helene discovered she was pregnant. And at first, things were going pretty well, until about two weeks before she was due. George revealed to Helene that he actually had a wife and children back in the States and that he was sorry, but he was going to have to go home. You know, he had to bounce. So he abandoned her to basically give birth alone. Now, sources differ, of course, as some say she went into a depression or perhaps postpartum depression and just couldn't will herself to bond with or care for baby Guy. But other sources say she resented the baby or even hated him. Regardless, it was said that she would leave the infant with random babysitters who she wouldn't or couldn't pay. And this went on for a few years until she finally abandoned him with DDASS, which was the French Social Welfare Service. Her parents refused to take the baby after they had already taken in her first child, and unfortunately, also because he was of blended race. So once Helene left him, she left France altogether and immigrated to the United States, where she went on to marry another military man. 
Guy's name was then changed from Guy Rampion to Guy George. It was hinted that they used his biological father's name as his last name. And then they waited for a family to want to adopt him, except... It was said that no one wanted to adopt him due to him being black, which is disgusting. Then at six years old, he was finally adopted by the Morins family, who had seven biological children and an additional 12 other adopted children. That's a grand total of 19 children under one roof. And again, he was the only one, not only that family, but in the local area, that was black. I didn't see anywhere where he was bullied in these earlier years for him being different, though, which I think is fabulous. But if he had, that might have been the least of his concerns, because as I'm sure anyone could guess, with that many children in the house, he received little attention or love. It was also said that there wasn't a lot of structure or stability within the home either, which would be so very important. People would describe young guy as a nice kid who was always happy to help in any capacity he could. But with little attention and a lot of unsupervised free time, he began to hunt and kill small animals. Some said that he was perfectly able to sit quite still for hours at a time observing his prey, which would be a behavior he would carry into his adulthood. It was also stated that while he was quite an intelligent child, he didn't really bother with keeping up with his studies and was described as lazy. He would often get into fights and was caught stealing, displaying aggressive behaviors, and this was all before puberty. So when he was 14 years old, he attempted to strangle one of his younger foster sisters who was also mentally handicapped. Guy did this again a year later to another foster sister using a crowbar. The way his adoptive parents handled this was to place him into a residential center for, quote, difficult children during the week. Then he was made to sleep in a camper in the yard on the weekends. Finally, when he was 16 years old, Guy was sent to a state orphanage. He was soon expelled from high school for stealing, left the state orphanage, and started drinking and doing drugs. At just 17, he had begun to attack and rob women at knife point, though he did cut one young lady badly enough to leave a substantial scar on her face. This offense landed him in juvenile detention for nine months. In February 1981, the now 19-year-old guy was then placed in what we would know of as sort of a halfway house, a place for problematic young adults, but After six months, he was able to steal all of the money in their safe that the facility had, and Guy immediately fled to Paris. And I think this is a pretty good place to stop and analyze young Guy's childhood. Now, sadly, there are many different ways that parents can fail their children. Children are born literally pre-wired with some very specific emotional needs, Thanks to loads of scientific research, we now know, without a doubt, that in order to grow and thrive as an adult, children must feel loved and emotionally attached to their parents. 
It is very difficult for a child's brain to absorb the enormity of abandonment. Children often suffer problems with anger or grief after the loss of a parent. Most children have difficulty believing that the loss is permanent, even if their parents have passed away. In Guy's case, we don't know whether or not he believed his mother was going to come back for him or not. Some issues with regards to child abandonment include learning to trust others. When a parent abandons their child, that parent is violating the child's most basic human need, which is to feel valued. If the one who is meant to love and care for the child the most in this world leaves, well, it becomes very difficult to believe that anyone and everyone who becomes important to the child will not do the same. They may end up living their life constantly on guard for the possibility of being abandoned again. It's hard to trust that your partner, friend, or loved one has your best interests in mind. This holds you back from forming rich, deep, and trusting relationships. Another issue, aside from trust, is guilt and shame. All abandoned children are deeply confused about why their parents left them. Many struggle with the fact that there is no good explanation because, let's face it, apart from death, there is no good reason for a parent to abandon a child. In the absence of a logical explanation, the child naturally tends to blame themselves. This sets up a pattern of feeling deeply responsible for their parents' choice to leave them. The abandoned child often grows up to struggle with guilt and shame. And then we have the issue of self-worth. The abandoned child wonders why the parent abandoned them. Being left by the one who brought you into this world naturally makes you wonder what is wrong with you. The abandoned child is set up to never feel good enough. Deeply, painfully, he feels unworthy of true love and commitment. So the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry published an online article talking about attachment disorders. And, you know, we've talked in depth about attachment disorders in the past. But to touch on it again, attachment disorders are psychiatric illnesses that can develop in young children who have problems in emotional attachments to others. Most children with attachment disorders have had severe problems or difficulties in their early relationships. They may have been physically or emotionally abused or neglected. Some have experienced inadequate care in an institutional setting or other out-of-home placement. Examples of out-of-home placements include residential programs, foster care, or orphanage. And I watched a documentary a while back about, and I'm not picking on Russia specifically, but it was about Russian orphanages and how these children never get held and that they grow up with really severe issues. It was kind of disturbing to watch. So others have had multiple traumatic losses or changes in their primary caregiver. The exact cause of attachment disorders is not known, but research suggests that inadequate caregiving is a plausible cause. The physical, emotional, and social problems associated with attachment disorders may persist as the child grows older. Children who have attachment issues can develop two possible types of disorders, 
reactive attachment disorder, and disinhibited social engagement disorder. In my last podcast, we touched on a reactive attachment disorder. Children with RAD are less likely to interact with other people because of negative experiences with adults in their early years. They have difficulty calming down when stressed and do not look for comfort from their caregivers when they are upset. These children may seem to have little to no emotions when interacting with others. They may appear unhappy, irritable, sad, or scared while having normal activities with their caregiver. The diagnosis of RAD is made if symptoms become chronic. Children with disinhibited social engagement disorder do not appear fearful when meeting someone for the first time. They may be overly friendly, walk up to strangers, or talk, or even hug them. Younger children may allow strangers to pick them up, feed them, or give them toys to play with. When these children are put in a strange situation, they do not check with their parents or caregivers and will often go with someone they do not know. So it goes without saying that Guy would have suffered from parental abandonment issues and very well might have been dealing with an attachment disorder. Again, I'm not a PhD, but I'm thinking that it could be a possibility. So then he was finally adopted into a house with nearly 20 children. Some sources said more. In an article written for the National Library of Medicine, National Center for Biotechnology Information, One's housing relates to many aspects of social life, including privacy, location, health, security, social relations, and community resources. One aspect of housing quality is the quantity of housing that is available to each member of a household. For a given household size, the size of the dwelling unit determines the degree of housing crowding experienced by the persons who live there. Living in crowded housing conditions can create stress in the home and have negative consequences for its inhabitants. Children may be particularly vulnerable to this type of poor housing quality because they use the space in the home to do homework, interact with family members, develop their identity, practice skills, and even sleep. And the importance of sleep, especially in childhood, is not to be underestimated. So children are particularly dependent on and influenced by their home environments. The home is where the majority of children's socialization, skill development, and identity formation occurs. These processes can be disruptive if the home environment is strained by overcrowding. Living in a crowded home may affect a child's well-being in a variety of ways. The lack of a comfortable, quiet space can lead children to have difficulty studying and reading, affecting their school performance. When space is scarce, different schedules held by household members may disturb the children's sleep. The lack of productive sleep can lead to difficulty concentrating during the day and negatively affect mood and behavior. In addition, children in crowded housing have a higher probability of catching illnesses which can interfere with their daily routine and interrupt their schooling. Parents in overcrowded homes tend to show less responsive parenting. Children in crowded homes have more behavioral problems in school, which can extend to other social contexts. Children raised in crowded homes may take their educational, 
behavioral and physical health disadvantages with them throughout their lives. Behavioral problems can lead to difficulties interacting with others. Negative interactions with teachers, parents, and peers during childhood can lead to future challenges in forming personal and professional networks in adulthood. Researchers have explored a variety of outcomes and found that housing crowding leads to adult psychological withdrawal, loneliness, poor marital relationships, negative parent-child relations, less responsive parenting, higher rates of being held back a grade in elementary and middle school, and increased child behavioral problems at school. So Guy did not have a loving and stable relationship with his mother. She effectively dumped him off on babysitters or whoever would take him until she finally surrendered him to the French Child Welfare Department. He was then passed around until he was adopted at six years old into a family who had entirely too many children. We already know that he got little to no attention from his adoptive parents and was effectively left to fend for himself. Without a vital bond or having the feeling of a secure and loved place in his own home, he went out and began hunting and killing animals. Now, could this have been for sport or food? I mean, at this young age, I highly doubt that. But once he was about on the other side of puberty, the aggression towards animals turned to aggression towards two of his foster sisters, one of whom had a cognitive handicap. This would show that he was targeting someone he believed would be no challenge. He was stealing, fighting all the classic signs of a conduct disorder. I'm not saying that he had conduct disorder, but some of his behaviors do align with that, including aggressive behaviors, physical fights, cruelty to animals, using a weapon, destructive conduct, lying, theft, and so on, basically displaying antisocial behaviors. Rather than any type of healthy intervention, he was discarded again to an effectively inpatient facility for troubled teens and left to sleep out in a camper on the weekends. And hey, you know, I get it. He attacked two of the girls in the home. He was causing serious trouble. Talk about a rock and a hard place. Expelled from school, he began attacking and robbing women, leaving one with substantial facial scars after. Drugs alcohol. All of these factors make quite the combination for a very dangerous person. So let's continue. In late 1981, sources state that he raped and stabbed a young pregnant woman, though thankfully both survived. A few months after, he stole a car and was caught and put in prison, though it was said that he was free to walk out of the jail during the day, but was required to be back by night. And it was while out during the day that he raped and stabbed another woman. She too survived, but he was caught and sentenced to another 18 months. In 1984, he was again granted day outside access to the public, where he promptly attacked yet another woman. He was yet again caught, and this time he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. According to the site MurderWineCheese.com, while he was serving this long sentence, he began to research about his biological mother. 
This led to him finding his mother's parents who told him about his older brother and how she had taken him with her to the United States. So wrap your mind around that. Take a moment. This information was basically the proverbial last nail in the coffin because it told him that his mother truly had not loved or cared for him, that she had left him behind. She had taken her favorite child. This only made his anger and resentment worse. Now, in 1991, the now 29-year-old guy was gifted with the day release, but he decided he was not going back to prison. He had been transferred to another prison outside of Paris, but he fled back. He picked up where he left off with substance abuse and worked as a sex worker to make money. In late January 1991, he noticed a 19-year-old young lady and followed her home. He caught up to her as she was at her door, and he forced her to let him inside by knife point. Once in, it was said he raped her and repeatedly, no, once in, it was said he raped her repeatedly before slitting her throat. And then he took the liberty of washing up in her bathroom, then sitting and drinking a beer in her kitchen before finally leaving. Three months later, he followed another woman to her apartment, where he forced her to allow him inside by knife point. He demanded she hand over any money she had, but she had none. He then told her to, um, perform a sexual act on him, but she refused. She was screaming, and he decided to run, and people heard her. The police were summoned, and he was caught. He was sentenced to another two years in prison. So, a couple of years later, once he was out, yet again, he decided on his old routine, saw an attractive young woman, and followed her home. Once she got to the first set of doors to her apartment and got them open, he forced his way in past her. At first, he told her he lived in the building and had forgot his door code. So she put in her door code, and once they crossed the threshold, he began to attack her. Now, she managed to fend him off, and she ran through the building screaming, but he managed to get away. And then, for the next nine months or so, he stayed under the radar. Guy began dating a woman, and they got an apartment together. Things got serious. He got a job. He was living the straight life, entertaining guests in their flat, and so on. Only his girlfriend found out she was pregnant and had an abortion, even though he had wanted to have the baby. This act would be the beginning of the end of their relationship. So in November 1994, he got into a woman's car in an underground parking garage. He raped her and then stabbed her to death. Her body was discovered the next day. The next month, he raped and murdered another woman. And it was at this point that the media began reporting of a possible serial killer in Paris. Guy and his girlfriend lost their apartment and it was said that they had to crash on friends' couches for a while before they finally split up for good. In order to survive, Guy picked up his habits of stealing, selling drugs, and selling his own body. In June 1995, Guy forced his way into a woman's apartment, a maneuver 
that he was pretty successful with, and she stayed calm enough that they actually began talking, and they even smoked some cigarettes together, but he finally tied her up and left the room. She managed to get out of her binding and make a narrow escape. The next month, he raped and murdered a woman in her apartment after she returned from an evening out. Shortly after, Guy assaulted another woman, but did not murder her. But there was some progress being made in the police investigation into the, quote, killer of East Paris. And even though a survivor had managed to give a vague description of her attacker, when she was shown a picture of him, she unfortunately was not able to identify him. But police did have DNA traces left at two crime scenes, including what he had left on the cigarette butts, by the same individual and a footprint found at the location of one of the crimes, so zeroing in. In August of 1995, he attempted to attack a woman who was entering her apartment, but her boyfriend was at the door to greet her, and Guy was forced to run, but he just dropped his wallet, and when he went to the police station to claim it, he was, of course, arrested and sentenced to just under two years for the attempted assault, and remember, they were still not aware that he was the serial killer. And so, he was released in 1997. When released, he told acquaintances that, you know, the reason he had been imprisoned was because he stabbed a racist bouncer outside of a nightclub and to his friends, you know, it seemed reasonable enough. And guys, he was out of prison, but a hot minute when he tried to attack a woman in her apartment building, but she screamed loud enough that he fled. Two months later... As fall was beginning, Guy followed a young woman, raped, and stabbed her to death. Her fiancé was the one to discover her later. His last victim was a woman he followed home in November of 97. He forced his way into her home behind her, raped, and also stabbed her to death. Her parents were the ones who found her body two days later. The police investigation was finally gaining traction, and investigators knew for certain that several of their unsolved crimes were linked. The media frenzy surrounding the killings had unleashed a level of panic in the people of Paris. The killer was then dubbed the Beast of Bastille due to the fact that several of his attacks had occurred in the Bastille Quarter, the famed revolutionary-era Parisian neighborhood. The authorities were finally able to match his DNA to several crime scenes, and he was located and arrested in March of 1998 when he was 36 years old. When he was confronted with this evidence, he confessed to murdering seven women. He was assessed by psychiatrists who dubbed him sane and fit to stand trial. Now, during his trial, some of his surviving victims testified against him, detailing what he had done to them. Even his now 71-year-old foster mother testified. Sources said that eight days into the proceedings, a defeated guy broke down in tears, though I might argue whether they were heartfelt tears or not. 
but he was ultimately sentenced to life in prison for a minimum of 22 years, and he is still in prison as of this recording. He stabbed, sliced, strangled, or attempted to, maimed, permanently scarred, and murdered. He told one of the psychiatrists that he had an insatiable need for validation and attention. During his trial, he said, quote, I will inflict pain on myself. I will never leave prison. You can live in peace. Whatever happens, I won't do it again. Even if you don't accept it, I ask for forgiveness. End quote. So personal observation. As I look at his victims, nearly if not all being young, white women, I can't help but think that, in his eyes, he was punishing his mother each and every time. While only slightly, it does make me think of Ed Kemper and how he felt he was killing his mother over and over. I feel like, perhaps, this is what was happening here as well. The mother wound and that level of abandonment would leave such a deep scar. His biological father didn't want him, and it seemed as though his mother didn't want him either. He was then passed around in the foster system until he was dumped into a home with entirely too many children, and there was just no room for the love and affection, and no one-on-one -on -one time that each and every child so desperately needs. Does this excuse his behavior? Absolutely not but it might give us a glimpse into the, you know, why, which is what I'm always striving to find. But tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below, or you can DM me on Instagram, at Serial underscore Killing, or I'm very active on the Serial Killing, a podcast fan page on Facebook, so you can talk to me there as well. Um, any other contact information is in the notes. And don't forget, I'll be at True Crime Fest, NWA, meaning Northwest Arkansas, on May 20th, all day. So come see me if you'd like. But most importantly, thank you so much for listening. Because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you just keep choosing me. And I'm humbled and I'm very, very thankful. Thank you so much, guys. And have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.